Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, one of the most important words in all the Bible is the word soul. We toss around the word soul a lot, don't we? In conversation with family and friends. I'm sure all of us would agree that we have a soul, but if I were to ask you to explain to me what exactly the soul is, what is the soul? How would you answer? How would you respond? You might be hard-pressed to give a response, which is pretty fascinating because whether we are religious or not, whether we're Christian or not, the word soul shows up in our everyday vocabulary, doesn't it? For example, when somebody passes away, what do we typically say? May God rest her. Or when somebody does something especially evil, cruel, immoral, unethical, we ask that individual, have you no? On the football field, a coach might tell his players, put your soul into the game. Sometimes we refer to the person that we're in love with, the person that we want to spend the rest of our life with, as our captains. We'll refer to the passengers on board their airplane or their ship as souls, not simply as people, but as souls. For example, they might say, we have 200 souls on board, or we have 155 souls on board. Some people have said that the letters SOS, that those letters don't stand for save our ship, Instead, they stand for save our souls. We even sing songs, don't we, about the devil, the evil one, going down to Georgia looking for a... You all know this song, don't you? Because he was in a bind. He was way behind. He was willing to make a deal, right? Apparently, according to that song, the devil has a quota when it comes to stealing souls. But seriously, a lot of us were even taught this, this bedtime prayer when we were small children. How does it go? Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, and if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to Now, I realize some people find that prayer to be comforting, reassuring. I'll be honest, I found that prayer to be a little terrifying when I was a seven-year-old, saying that alone in the dark. No, God, don't take my soul. Keep my soul right here in my little body. And if God does, in fact, take my soul, as that prayer says, what is God taking what is the soul? A Jeffrey Boy is a Yale psychiatrist and an ordained Christian minister. He did some research years ago, and he discovered through that research that almost half of all church-going people, so that would be people like you, people like me, almost half of all church-going people adopt what he calls the Looney Tunes theory of the soul. You could drop this in a conversation this afternoon. Your friends will really be impressed. The Looney Tunes theory of the soul. Don't you love that? Here's how it works. If this guy up here, what's his name? Daffy Duck. Well, if Daffy Duck were to blow up a dynamite, you've seen these episodes before, haven't you? What would happen next? 
While a transparent image of Daffy Duck would rise above the dead body, this translucent image of Daffy Duck would have wings on his back, a halo over his head, and carry a harp, and then he would yell at Bugs Bunny, or Marvin the Martian, or Elmer Fudd, or whoever blew him up. It sounds almost silly to talk about cartoons. In fact, it does sound silly to talk about cartoons when it comes to something as spiritual as the soul. But let's be honest, that's the picture of the soul that a lot of us carry. And maybe there's a reason for this. Maybe the reason is we mainly think of the soul as something that lives on after we die. That upon death, when we take our final breath here on this earth, our body ceases to exist and our soul lives on. But folks, the soul is not simply something that lives on after we die. The soul is far more than that. The soul is the deepest expression. Can you say those two words with me? Deepest expression. The soul is the deepest expression of who we are. It is the most important part of who we are. It is the center of our life, the center of our being, the center of our whole existence, which means, and this is important, if our life isn't going well, if our life isn't going the way that we want it to, the way that we would have hoped, the way that we would have dreamed, the problem may not be with our circumstances. The problem may actually be with our soul. That's what John Ortberg discovered. Some of you might recognize the name John Ortberg. I've mentioned his, names and his name in previous sermons. Uh, nowadays, John Ortberg is a well-known pastor, writer, speaker. But back in the 1980s, John Ortberg wasn't nearly as well-known as he is today. During that period of time in the 80s, John Ortberg was pastoring a small congregation in California. And he came across this book that was written by a philosophy professor by the name of Dallas Willard. And so John Ortberg decided that he would write a note to Dallas Willard letting him know how much he enjoyed this book, how much the book helped him as a young minister, how much he benefited from it, how much the book meant to him. Well, much to his surprise, Dallas Willard actually wrote back to him. This was back before email when people wrote letters to each other. So Dallas Willard, this well-known philosopher, he writes back to this young pastor, John Ortberg. Not only that, but he also invited John Ortberg over to his home for a visit. Turned out, that Dallas Willard lived not too far away in Box Canyon. Anybody here ever heard of Box Canyon, been to Box Canyon before? You know who else is from Box Canyon? Charles Manson. The reason I share that is you have a mass murderer, a Christian philosopher, both of whom were from the same town. But as Ortberg says, those are the possibilities of the human soul. Now, Ortberg admits that he went to Dallas Willard's house for the wrong reasons. I mean, Dallas Willard was like a celebrity in the church world. People knew Dallas Willard. They respected him. They read his books. They listened to his lectures. And so John Ortberg, as this young pastor leading this small congregation, well, he was hoping that maybe some of Dallas Willard's importance could rub off on him. In other words, maybe somehow, in some way, he could become more successful just by being associated with Dallas Willard, having a relationship with Dallas Willard. But what he ended up discovering is that Dallas Willard's home in Box Canyon 
was like a hospital for the soul. That first conversation that the two of them shared led to many other conversations. And it also led to a friendship between the two of them that spanned the course of decades, up until Dallas Willard's death in 2013. And all the biblical insights that John Orberg gained from Dallas Willard about the soul, well, what he did is he wrote those down. And he recorded them in a book. Uh, the book was published almost 10 years ago in 2014. We have it up here on the screen. The book is entitled Soul Keeping. Soul Keeping. The subtitle is Caring for the Most Important Part of You. Um, you can find this book on Amazon. You can find it in bookstores. I read this book when it was first published almost 10 years ago, and I reread it in preparation for this sermon series. And so I certainly hope uh, that you will go ahead and read this book if you can. Starting today, what we're going to be doing as a congregation, and it's not going to be a very long series, it's only going to be three weeks, but starting today, we are launching into a new series that we have entitled, after the book, Soul Keeping. And so what we're going to be doing in this sermon series is we're going to be using that book, Soul Keeping, in conversation with the Bible, Scripture, our primary guide. And in doing this, we're going to explore in these messages three big topics and those three big topics are these. Number one, what the soul is. Number two, what the soul needs. And then number three, what a restored soul looks like, the restored soul. So what the soul is, what the soul needs, and the restored soul. You know who talked a lot about the soul? Jesus talked a lot about the soul and the Gospels. In fact, listen carefully with me to what Jesus says here in the Gospel of Mark. This is a very well-known statement from Jesus. He says this, Mark chapter 8, verses 36 and 37, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Nothing, not a thing in this universe is worth more than our soul, according to Jesus, the Son of God. And so folks, if that's the case, if that's true, and I believe that it's true, I'm sure that a lot of you, maybe all of you do too, if that's true, don't you think it's worth understanding what the soul is? I do. So let's dive in. You ready? One of the first lessons that Dallas Willard taught John Ortberg, he said that our lives as human beings involve two components, two dimensions. We have our outer life. Can somebody say outer life? And then we have our inner life. Say inner life. Inner. Outer life, inner life. Our outer life, it, it includes things like our education, our career, what we do for work, what we do for a living, our accomplishments, our successes, our accolades, the things that we like to put on our resume. Our outer life um, also includes our reputation, what people think about us, how other people talk about us, how other people perceive us, our outer life is busy. Anybody feel as if your outer life is busy? It's complex. Sometimes it's chaotic. We can barely keep up. But you know what it is most of all? It's visible, which means we can see it. But not only can we see it, other people around us can see it. And so consequently, that's where we invest a lot of our attention. We put a lot of our focus on our outer life. We have this assumption, if my outer life can just be put together in a certain way, then I will be happy. You ever said this before? 
If I can just get that job, if I can just get that promotion, if I could just get that corner office, if I could just get my boss to notice me and like me and respect me, if I could just get into that degree program at that school, well, then I'm going to be on the fast track to success. If I could just get that house, if I could just get that 401k plan, well, then everything's going to be fine. So we have our outer life where we put a lot of our focus. And we have our inner life. Our inner life is where our thoughts, our dreams, our wishes, our desires reside. Our inner life, unlike our outer life, which is visible, our inner life is invisible, which means nobody can see it. Nobody has access to it except God and ourselves. And so as a result, it's pretty easy to ignore and neglect we spend so much of our time, so much of our energy and attention in our outer life, that we never stop to think about our inner life. It's true for a lot of us. Back in the mid to late 90s and early 2000s, one of the most popular TV sitcoms was Everybody Loves Raymond. You ever seen an episode of Everybody Loves Raymond? It's a funny show. Uh, now you can watch reruns on TV. Amanda and I like, Amanda and I like to watch reruns uh, late at night, just before bed, uh, once the kids are asleep. It's a really funny show. The show is based on the comedic work of Ray Romano, gifted actor, gifted comedian, funny guy. And he's got a fascinating story, Ray Romano does. He went from struggling stand-up comic. I mean, this guy, as an adult, he was living in his parents' basement to one of the highest-paid actors in the industry. In fact, when the show was at its peak, he was making more money per episode than any actor before him in television history. He was making anywhere from $1.7 million to $1.8 million just for an episode. Well, when the show was over, it had its last season in May of 2005, Romano walked onto the set, and there was a studio audience. And so he began to reflect with the studio audience on the show's success. And then he got vulnerable, and he told the people in the audience about a note that his big brother wrote to him. His big brother was actually a New York City police officer, just like his TV show big brother. He said the note said, and by the way, his brother stuck this note in his luggage when he moved from New York to Hollywood nine years earlier. The note said, what is a prophet of man? If he gains the whole world, but loses his soul. Romano had tears in his eyes, and he said, now I'm going to work on my soul. Romano's outer life was impressive, filled with fame, fortune, success, that few people ever achieved, but by his own admission, his inner life hadn't gotten as much attention. What does it profit us? If we gain this whole world, and yet we lose our soul. Many of us make a mistake when we read those words from Jesus. You see, we assume that what Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter if you enjoy all the pleasures of this world, if in the end you just end up going to hell. I'll be honest with you, that's how I read those words for a long time. But as Dallas Willard told John Orberg, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus, in that passage, he's not talking about a destination like heaven or like hell. No, instead, 
Jesus is talking about a diagnosis. Jesus is talking about a condition. In other words, Jesus is saying, who cares if your outer life is all nice, all put together, all pretty? Who cares if you've got an impressive 401k or a great career or you're one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood? But your inner life, where your soul resides, and therefore where your relationship with me resides, is suffering and neglected and dying. That's what John Ortberg began to realize and understand. Here he was, a pastor, working in a church, preaching sermons, counseling people, but his own soul was not in the healthiest condition. And that's what drew him to Dallas Willard. That's why Dallas Willard became such a mentor to him. This was a guy, Ortberg said, who had mastered the inner life as much as one can master the inner life, or at least he had come much further than most. Dallas Willard, John Ortberg said, didn't seem to have an impatient bone in his body. People can't say that about me, but they said that about him. Didn't seem to have an impatient bone in his body. He was never in a hurry, never in a rush. When he spoke to you, it was as if there was nobody else in the world. If the phone rang in a conversation, he wouldn't answer the phone. It was as if worry and fear and anxiety didn't exist in him. And what was clear is that he had this inner sense of calm, this abiding sense of peace that was hard to articulate. But no external circumstance, not even the cancer diagnosis that he received, could take that away. John Ortberg, like all of us, he longed for that kind of inner life. Don't you long for that kind of inner life? But for that to happen, you have to understand the soul. The soul is the life center of who we are. It's like the steering wheel of a car. It drives our whole being. Or some people have said, it's like a computer program. You usually don't notice a computer program until it crashes, right? So what is the soul? One day, at this time, Ortberg was serving a church in Chicago as an associate pastor, a large church, prominent congregation. And he picked Alice Willard up from the airport because he had come into Chicago to speak at that church. And so they were in the car, and they decided to stop off, get lunch at a Chili's restaurant. And they were sitting down in their booth, and John Orper confided in his mentor. He said, Dallas, I'll be honest with you. I'm a pastor. I've been to seminary. I have all this education. I work in a church. I preach sermons. I don't understand what the soul is. I talk about the soul, but, but, but what is the soul? Define the soul for me. And so with that... Dallas Willard took out a pen, he grabbed a napkin from the table, and he drew a series of concentric circles. You can see these circles up here on the screen. And he explained that each of us as human beings, that we have four parts, four parts. And by the way, hopefully I haven't lost you yet, but if I'm going to lose you, it's probably going to be here. Uh, this is the most technical part of the sermon, and so I really would encourage you um, to just try to stay with me as much as possible. Uh, but this is really helpful uh, when it comes to understanding the soul. So he drew a series of circles. The innermost circle, the will. The will. Now what is the will? Well, we all know what the will is. The will is simply the capacity to choose. It's the ability to make a decision. It's the freedom to say yes to something and the freedom to say no to something. We see the will all throughout the Bible, don't we? For example, one of the first stories of Scripture, God creates Adam, the very first man, and what does he tell Adam to do? To name all the animals. And naming all the animals, 
Adam is exercising his will. He is practicing dominion over creation, which God invites him to do. Uh, God invites human beings to practice dominion over the planet. That involves the will. When somebody makes a bad decision, when somebody commits a crime, we hold that person accountable, don't we? Because we believe that that person had free will, that they chose to do what they did. Nobody coerced them, nobody made them, they had that freedom. The will is something that we treasure in ourselves. The will is something that we treasure in other people. But the will is also extremely limited. Why is it limited? Because it's been compromised and tainted by what? Sin. That's why bad habits. You ever try to break a bad habit before? Bad habits are hard to break, aren't they? Or that's why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, what does he say? He says, I don't understand myself because there's this thing over here that I want to do, but I don't do it, and there's this thing over here that I hate, and I do that thing instead. That's why one of the first steps of the 12-step program is to do what? To submit yourself to a higher power. Because if you try to improve your soul, maybe you've tried this before, I've tried it, if you try to improve your soul by willpower, it ain't going to happen. You're not going to be successful. All you're going to do is exhaust yourself and exhaust everybody else around you. But we still have a will, and it's important. Number two, we have the mind. The mind is where our thoughts and our feelings come from. And that's why Jesus said that corrupt thoughts, evil thoughts, like hating somebody, or lusting after another person, they're so dangerous because what happens in our mind affects the rest of who we are, doesn't it? doesn't it? That's also why the Apostle Paul in Philippians, he tells the people in Philippi to think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. What happens in our mind matters. But like the will, the mind has been compromised by sin, and so it's limited. We have the will, we have the mind, and what's number three? The body. Our bodies are like little power packs, Dallas Willard said. Our bodies are where we outsource all of our behavior, like tying our shoes, driving a car, doing really complicated things. Our bodies are important. God made our bodies. God created our bodies. As Christians, we believe that in the fullness of time, God took on a body at Christmas time in the person of Jesus Christ. But as important as our bodies are, as human beings, we are more than the stuff our bodies are comprised of. So we have the will, the mind, the body, and what's number four? The soul. What's the soul? Here's the definition. The soul is what integrates all these parts, the will, the mind, the body, and binds them together as a whole, as one unit. That's why the word integrity, folks, think about the word integrity with me. That's why the word integrity is such a soulish word, isn't it? It's a soulish word. What does it mean to be led by integrity? When we say that somebody is a person of integrity, what are we saying? Well, we're saying that that person is integrated. That person is whole. The will, the mind, and the body, they're all working together. When the will, the mind, and the body disintegrate, well, then we're in trouble. Think about the question that we raised earlier at the beginning of the sermon, have you no soul? Maybe somebody has said that to you. Hopefully somebody hasn't said that to you, but, but maybe it's happened, or maybe you said that to somebody else. What are we saying when we ask that question? Is your mind not bothered 
not troubled by the immoral and ethical actions that you have willed and that your body has carried out? In other words, the will, the mind, the body are disintegrated. They're not working together. They're experiencing disunity. And when the will, the mind, and the body experience disunity because of sin, then the soul is lost. It's not as it should be. It's lost. And again, when I use that word lost, I'm not talking about a destination like hell. I'm talking about a condition, a diagnosis. The sad truth is we live on a planet of lost souls. Lost souls are everywhere. Not too long ago, I was driving in the car, running an errand. I think Amanda told me to do something, pick something up, and so I was doing that. And I was on State Road 436. You ever drive on 436 before? It's kind of crazy on 436, isn't it? So I had to make a U-turn to get back home. I'm in the turn lane. There was a car right in front of me, and there was a car right behind me. So I was second in line. Well, the cars on the other side were coming pretty fast, as cars often do, not just on 436, but pretty much everywhere, on every road in central Florida, maybe all of Florida. And the car in front of me didn't really feel confident making a U-turn. They wanted to wait till more cars had passed by. Well, the person behind me did not accept that. So what did he do? Honk, 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 honk. He's just blasting his horn, but the person didn't budge. So what did he do next? Well, he rolled down his window, and the things that he was saying were not very polite. I'll have to tell you that. He was yelling. He was screaming. He was cursing. He was swearing, said all kinds of unkind things. And then finally, since the person didn't move, he got so fed up. By the way, keep in mind that he was driving a car or a truck that had his company logo on it or the company logo of his boss, something like that. <laughs> he didn't seem to care. But he got so fed up with waiting that he just made a U-turn right there over the median. Can't say that I've seen that very often. The interesting thing is I saw that driver just a few minutes later at a red light even with all that crazy driving, this guy hadn't gotten any further ahead than anybody else. Now listen, I want to be clear. It is not my place to judge anybody. Amen? Only God knows what's going on with each person. And I also recognize, as my wife will tell you, that I am far from a perfect driver. But at the same time, that kind of behavior, it does not come from a centered soul. It simply does not. And I don't say this to sound sanctimonious or anything like that because I think about those times in my own life when my soul is way off center. If I'm driving in the car and somebody cuts me off and all they do is inconvenience me out of five seconds of my day, but for some reason I get really mad about it, problem's not with that person. Problem's with my soul. Or if I am feeling especially irritable and impatient with every little thing bothering me and bugging me and getting under my skin. Has that ever happened to you before? Just me? The problem is with my soul. Or if something happens during the day, perhaps somebody makes a discouraging remark and my whole day is shot because of that discouraging remark. All I can do is think about that person's comment. That's my soul's way of saying, hey, Chris, remember me? The soul that got created? I'm dying over here. I need attending to. We live in a soul-challenged world. 
For the soul to be at peace, please listen very carefully, for the soul to be at peace, that requires attention, attending to. And we're going to talk more about this over the next couple of weeks. Uh, and Orberg also talks about this in his book. What are those practices that heal the soul? What are those practices that give life to the soul? But for now, this morning, I want us to hold on to this truth that we pay way more attention to our outer life than we do our soul. Even though the soul is the one thing that you and I are going to take with us into eternity when we die. Now, I want to be clear that attending to the soul does not mean, it does not mean that we ignore our outer life. It doesn't mean that we ignore our job. It doesn't mean that we ignore our finances. But it does mean that we recognize how these things impact the soul. And actually, the real truth is, your outer life can be a mess. Your outer life can be falling apart, completely chaotic, and your soul can still be at peace. Consider these marvelous words that God inspired the Apostle Peter to write in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Peter says, you love him. He's talking here about Jesus Christ. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be what? The salvation of your souls. The salvation of your soul here it's not just about where you're going to go when you die. Salvation here is about healing and deliverance at the deepest level of who you are in the care of God and the presence of Jesus Christ. I don't say this to be pessimistic. I say this to be truthful. At some point, your outer life is going to fall apart. It's inevitable. It's probably happened to you before, either because of circumstances that you created or circumstances that have been imposed on you. What will matter in those moments is the kind of soul that you have allowed God to construct in you. Not that you've constructed, but that you have created space for God to construct. Can your soul, can the life center of who you are, withstand those turbulent waters? This gentleman who you see up here, his name was Horatio Spafford. He was an American lawyer, faithful Presbyterian, and he lived in Chicago with his family back in the 1800s. Well, when his son was just four years old, he died of scarlet fever. Sometime after that, again, they lived in Chicago. Well, he and his wife had invested most of what they had in real estate. They lost everything in the great Chicago fire of 1871. Remember learning about that when you were in school? They had a home. They didn't have insurance. Lost everything. Well, sometime after that, in 1873, two years later, he put his wife and his daughters, he had four daughters, I think their ages were anywhere from two years old to 12 years old. He put them all on board a ship heading for England to try to create a new life there. Meanwhile, he stayed behind in Chicago to try to re-stimulate his business. A few days after the ship departed, he got a telegram from his wife. This is what the telegram said. Saved alone. What shall I do? There had been a shipwreck. His wife had lived. All four daughters died. 
lost his son, lost his home, money, and then all four daughters. Can you imagine? Got on a ship heading for England to go meet up with his wife. As the ship passed over the part of the ocean where his daughters had drowned, he felt led by God to pen these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou, God, has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. When our inner life is attended to, when our will, our mind, and our body are all working together, our soul has a peace. Paul called this the peace that passes all understanding. Our soul has this peace that no external circumstance can take away. It doesn't mean that we don't grieve. It doesn't mean that we don't get upset. It doesn't mean that we don't have a bad day. But like Spafford, we can still say with confidence those words, it is well, it is well with my soul. Folks, hear this today. Our soul can be well. And our soul will be well when it rests and abides in God, the very one who created it, and us for himself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Perhaps those words from Spafford were familiar to you from the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And actually, we're going to hear that hymn right now. But before we do that, let's have a word of prayer. Oh God, you have created us. You have given us a soul, an inner life that we oftentimes neglect. We spend so much time in our outer life that we never stop to think about that part that nobody sees except for us and you. So God, we pray that by your grace and your power, we would recognize the beauty of the soul, the deepest expression of who we are, the center of our existence, and that we would create space for you to construct and build the kind of soul that can withstand difficult seasons. That even when everything else around us is collapsing, we can still say those words, it is well, it is well with my soul. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.